0: Conversations and connections, community building, refocusing resources, re education, healthy living, strong relationships, and safe spaces. The All Things Black Podcast is a weekly show dedicated to meaningful dialogue with a commitment to raise the voices of the voiceless and allow a platform for the expertise of qualified individuals that can help bridge the gaps in disenfranchised communities. I am your host and the producer of the show, Mr. Black Ovation. My mission is to help tell stories of Black lives through the art of podcasting and bring awareness to many of our brilliant Black men and women who are making real change in our communities. Welcome to Wednesday. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the All Things Black podcast with your host, Mr. Black Ovation. It is episode Wednesday once again. I love saying that by by the way, episode Wednesday. So this is another episode of the All Things Black podcast. And I want to say at the outset that I want to thank the listening audience for sharing, liking, listening to my program, all my different episodes, commenting, rating, leaving uh, voice messages on Anchor Podcast. Uh, I love absolutely every bit of that. Again, that helps me, you know, to further my um, podcast to be able to really benefit you as the listeners. Uh, so again, uh, thank you for doing all of that. And please continue to, to do the same thing, like, share, comment, rate, leave a voice message, and do not be afraid to don- donate to programs such as mine, right? We are in the business of literally trying to help you with great information and great people to come on the program and to give their expertise and information that will really, really open your eyes and be able to give value to you. Um, and that way you can walk away with something of substance. Today uh, on this episode, I'm going to be talking to a very distinguished guest and speaker. Uh, we're going to be talking and discussing, talking about and discussing education and critical race theory. I've literally had her on my show before. And uh, we were talking about inclusion and diversity and what that really looks like. She's well-versed in these type of topics. And I'm glad that she has graced my show once again. And I'm speaking of none other than Dr. Kemia Nuru-Dennis. And a little bit about Dr. Kemia is that she is the founder and owner of 365 Diversity. You can definitely find her there on her website, which is 365diversity.com. She's an activist, a sociologist, criminologist, an educator and researcher. Dr. Dennis is invested in educating, which is what we're going to be talking about today is education, uh, training, evaluating, and assessing for-profit collectives and non-profit collectives. She is also specialized in demographic and cultural identities and disparities shaping every aspect of K-12 schools and college and universities, uh, medical and health organizations, facilities, family services, police policies, and police presence, as well as community services and workforce. So with that being said, I'm going to introduce Dr. Kimya on my show. And if you will, Dr. Kimya, I would uh, want you to kind of um, give a little bit more of information about who you are and what you do, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. But the stage is yours.
1: Thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you having me on again. So I'm Dr. Kimia dennis I am born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, the second capital of the Confederacy. I am a product of predominantly Black Richmond Public Schools, K through twelve. My family got a Black family. I have three Black brothers. And I say all of that because I am taught and trained based in centuries of Black work, which is based in thousands of years of African work around the world. And so the work that I do captures a range of health equity, specifically Black physical health, Black mental health, Black suicide. Curriculum development, curriculum changes. So when I was still a full-time professor in North Carolina, I created an academic program in 2011 and operated the program for eight years, which included doing annual program assessments for accreditation process, hiring adjunct faculty, helping libraries determine what material they should and should not have. I selected course materials. I... Did all those works that are required for curriculum changes and curriculum development. And so that's why when I do this work with medical and health academic programs, I have taught and trained medical and health students and professionals. And whenever people say that it's complicated, we're addressing inequities, including health disparities. Life is always complicated, but I tell people, don't ever come back at me saying it's complicated. We know it's complicated. Now let's talk about what we're doing. Because if your only response is it's complicated, that means you don't want to do anything. And we need to talk about that as well. So thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Just like the last time you were on here, I mean, you're straightforward. You're a straight shooter. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. that really respect and love people like that. And then there's some people that kind of don't understand individuals like that or persons like that. And they find that people like that are kind of abrasive, right? Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: in the world that we live in today, I don't think we need the fluff. You know, I don't think we need the fluff anymore. We need straight shooters. We need people that are going to tell the truth. We need people that are unafraid and unabashed about what they believe in and things like that. And that's, again, another reason why I'm really happy to have you on the show. So thank you. Absolutely. So, Dr. Kemia. So education, right? So you are an Mm -hmm. educator. You've been in the uh, educational field for quite some time. You have worked with K-12 schools. So one of my first questions for you. Well, let me ask you this first. Are there any current projects or anything like that coming up that you want the listeners to know about?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. So right now, a colleague and I who we have a, a health equity consulting group that we have formed years ago when I still lived in North Carolina. So we have an October 20th virtual event about Black suicide that we're doing. So people who are interested in that can go to 365diversity.com and you'll see my email address at the top and I can send you the event break. It's free. It's virtual. I am among most Black people around the world who have lost a loved one to suicide. And so the work that I do to address black suicide is looking at different forms of suicide and having to explain, including to 99 percent of medical and health professionals and suicide prevention organizations, that there's no one size fits all when addressing suicide. So I'm doing the October 20th event. And I also want to reach our people who think that suicide was created by white people and is only done by white people because we got to talk about different forms of self-harming behaviors that can result in a suicide. And so that's what I'm doing October 20th. And that's my main focus right now because I've lost a loved one to suicide recently. And so other work that I'm doing regarding curriculum changes that is slowly but surely happening Because now the whole COVID back-to-school mask wearing vaccination concern is getting attention. But I tell people when we're talking about inequities in curriculum, those inequities are centuries upon centuries, and so every new tragedy cannot hide inequities. It just highlights the inequities even more, and Mm. we can talk about that more.
0: Right, right. I I I wholeheartedly agree. So, one of the questions I was going to ask you. I do have several questions and hopefully mm-hmm. they will, you know, highlight a lot of information that we're going to be talking and, and discussing tonight. But okay. one of the questions, just as a real quick backdrop, I, w- I remember reading a book years ago by a German gentleman by the name of Herbert Aperker. He supposedly had wrote this book called the American Negro slave revolts. And uh, mm-hmm. there were chapters, there was one particular chapter in there, that spoke of the machinations of control, and there was two stories that stood out in the book. One was with some Native American children, and that had to go to school. Right, they were being forced to go to school in the, you know, the European schools. Right, and one of the things that mm-hmm. they did to the Native American children was to immediately try to assimilate them into, you know, white culture,
1: and mm-hmm.
0: they did something that totally traumatized the children, which was cutting the hair. Now, yes. my, my little bit of research about Native, some, you know, some Native American cultures is that when you cut the hair of a Native American person or individual, if I'm, in, if I'm correct, it, what it's supposed to have symbolized was death, right? So they, don't, mm-hmm. they only cut their hair when somebody has actually transitioned to that plane, and so it was very traumatizing. And the reason I bring that up is because we're talking about the mechanisms of control. We're talking about education. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what are some of the what are some of the mechanisms of control in education in the educational system that most of us are still unaware of? I know we know about the prison, the school to prison pipeline stuff like that. But what are some of the things that you've literally seen in your tenure in as an educator? you know, from K-12 to college and universities, what are some of the things that we're not seeing that you've seen as far as the uh, systems of control?
1: Yes, I no longer pretend that grown adults are not aware. I just acknowledge that 99% don't care. And Mm -hmm. they stay in the oppressive system with oppressors, sometimes consensually. And that's how they rationalize their job, their profit, paying their bills. And so we're talking about 529 years of white power, white terrorism around the world that impacts and harms every part of our lives. So I use the identities of indigenous, native. I don't say Native American because I think that it's humiliating to call people who are hundreds of thousands of cultures and identities for since the existence of humans on the Western Hemisphere, Native American, right? Because they were here hundreds of thousands of years before European white people came and stole this land, stole, raped, and murdered Africans and indigenous people all up and down every part of the Western Hemisphere. And so I do wanna highlight that part. I don't say Native American because we're talking about people who were here before white people forced us to create what is now America and Canada. And so when I highlight this, a lot of teachers and school decision makers, voters and taxpayers, and not only white people, get uncomfortable because they have been accustomed now to hiding oppression through smiles. They want to hide white people's version of history, white people's versions of sciences and mathematics, which When I say that, people are like, what do you mean white people's version? Science is science. Well, did you ever learn indigenous science? What about all the African sciences, all the Asian sciences and so forth? So whenever I highlight all of that, people want to get offended. And some people's offense is trying to harass me and punish me in different ways. So that's why I say a lot of people understand this. It's just that oppression requires denial. And oppression requires tokens to help with that, denial. And I can stop there because I could go on forever about that. Hey,
0: I, yeah, I, I can I can take it. I, you know, I don't, I don't I don't know about too many of my listeners, but I can definitely take it. And you know, quite honestly, uh, a lot of the listeners, you know, they have kind of emailed me and kind of wrote me about the different episodes that I have had on the show. And um, you know, to, to my surprise, a lot of them kind of love the information that's being provided. So, but, um, I'd love it if you go on and on and on and on, but, uh, uh <laughs> you know, absolutely. I mean, because it's, it's learning to me, you know, I've always been, yeah. uh, to learn, you know, about my people and, uh, the different things that has gone on globally and internationally and, and stuff like that pertaining to black mm-hmm. people. But, uh, yeah, definitely, um, my condolences though, to the loss of your family member and, I wanted to kind of say that early on, mm-hmm. but also we, Thank you know, we got to the to the conversation to the question. Actually, so you are absolutely right, you. Uh, and you and I stand mm-hmm. corrected as I stand corrected as well with the term Native American. It is indigenous. Mm-hmm. It is indigenous. <clears throat> so one of the things that you said in you know your comment, you said that a lot of white people become uncomfortable. And through my research of listening to different podcasts that you've been on and different channels that you've actually been on, what makes it necessary for white people to feel uncomfortable about talking about racism, white supremacy, white male dominance, and the power of majority, especially when it pertains to education and why... Why? um, Well, I'll ask that question later. But but, but, but why is it necessary to for black for white people to become very uncomfortable when talking about racism and supremacy and things like that?
1: All right. So one thing I want to highlight when we're talking about the hundreds of thousands of indigenous identities and cultures on the Western Hemisphere before this land was stolen and people raped and murdered. And of course, this was before and also throughout transatlantic slavery and the control of African Black people. There's a Dawnland documentary called Dawnland, D-A-W-N-L-A-N-D, that highlights the full span of indigenous cultures, different identities, everything. Because, you know, one of the other things about white people's version of history and white people's version of the world is that. We're shown and we're forced to believe things like, you know, this notion that indigenous people are red and these images used for the Redskins and Richmond Braves and and so forth. And a lot of people, unfortunately, still don't know that Africa is a continent. Uh, Of course, you know, I'm Pan-African, pro-Black, Black feminist gender equity warrior, but I do want to highlight a lot of things that people believe because they were always taught from their families. And since preschool, that indigenous people were all over the Western hemisphere, but were somehow just one identity, one culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And they all looked the same way. They all spoke the same language. They all had the same religion, spiritualities, all had the same sciences, mathematics and knowledge. And so, people think the same thing about Asia and Africa because they're going based on white people's version of the world. And so I want to highlight how that is not accurate. And so, so can you throw that question at me again, because there's so much that goes into that question. So I want to make sure I just capture the full span of that.
0: Uh, So why is it necessary that white people are uh, to be made to feel uncomfortable When talking about racism, white supremacy, white male dominance, and the power majority?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So, when I mentioned Don Lynn, I mentioned that because there's a scene in the documentary. I went to the screening of it, I think it was 2018 when I still lived in North Carolina. And there's a scene where the white people who were helping the indigenous people were standing there, and the indigenous people we forming a collective because, you know, they were talking about how their people were stolen, had their hair cut off, forced in the schools, and the white people were standing there. And the indigenous people said, OK, you can go now. And they basically kicked the white folk out. I love that scene because although the white people did not look angry, it just illustrates centuries of what it means for white people to help without white people being thanked and worshipped. And I highlight that a lot in my work because unfortunately we got five centuries of particularly indigenous people and African black people who have been brainwashed to believe that this all revolves around white people, Mm -hmm. that white people, it's based on white people's permission. So you have people pretending, well, first of all, people pretend that Racism is only a USA problem. I don't, it's still baffling in 2021 that we have Black people on the continent of Africa, Caribbean, all around the world who somehow believe that they can read white people's books that are literally written and published by white people and then tell us that racism is a USA problem. But yeah. But so many of our people for centuries still to pretend that racial equity is based on white people's permission and approval mm. right and so they're pretending that white ownership is conducive to racial equity and that's the case when we're talking about any kind of power dynamics and any kind of oppressive power majority there's no such thing as equity if power majority has to wave at you and say come on in because when they change their mind guess what doors closed again right right exactly so when I go into this work, you know, white people are going to be offended regardless. And this does not vary by political party and by voting patterns. Um, This includes white liberals, white progressives, white anti-fascists, white Marxists, you know, white people in general. Because white people have, have also been taught for centuries, including white slave abolitionists, that they are now the saviors. right? Because they also conform to this notion, even if they're not Christian, like they're even white agnostics and white atheists who believe that Jesus was white and that, you know, they don't know that white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism and Catholicism are white people's version of what really happened and white people's version of Christianity based on historical and current facts. And they don't, they pretend not to know why white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism became the most dominant form of Christianity around the world and why Christian became, Christianity became one of the world's most dominant religions. Black and brown people reading the King James Version. Like, why should we care about King James Version, right? So I say all that because when we're talking about five centuries of terrorism, including the form of Christian missionaries, Catholicism missionaries, we're talking about in the form of what it means when white people say, our university is going to start a university in Africa. And we are supposed to believe that white people created universities in the first place. Right. Like literally you have centuries of black people and brown people, but black people in particular who are celebrating these very successful, wealthy, because of white supremacy, research one, top tier schools, opening a school across the globe. And you're supposed to be like, thank you. Without saying, we actually had universities for thousands of years, though. And you all stole our knowledge. Some of it you put in museums. Some of it you put your name on it. That's correct. And you taught us that you created it. So when I speak these historical and current facts, I don't go in there saying, white people, I'm going to make y'all blush and sweat. I'm going to make y'all cry. Right, right. I'm presenting facts. And throughout all my years of doing this work, I've been doing it for more than 10 years, including when I present to medical and health professionals, guess who it is who defends the white people? It oftentimes black people. It's, yeah, I was going to say that. That's correct. Yeah, I've had black people at nearly every training I've done stand up and say, well, it's not just white people's fault or you don't have to be rude. And I tell these black people, I said, if you were being lynched in the corner, the white people who you're defending right now would just stand there. And their excuse would be they need to keep their job to feed their children. So the fact that you are responding to me thinking that you're telling me to shut up speaks to why when we're talking about dismantling five centuries of oppressions and inequities that impact every part of our lives, It really literally is not just whether white people are uncomfortable. It's also the black and brown people. Are y'all rescuing white people right now? Right. Because that's the form of tokenism. When white people have learned over the centuries that they can disappear. Because black and brown people will do the job for them.
0: Yes, ma'am.
1: And that's literally. Yeah. So like we have. And I've had this discussion for years with black and brown health professionals where they literally, they'll be like, well, you know, I don't, I can't always reach black folk because not all black folk can pay bills and they can't pay the medical bill. I says, again, you got to ask yourself, why are you a medical and health professional? Are you literally just doing this work that controls our lives to pay the bills? If that's the case, you're just like the police like you control our lives. And at the end of the day, you will let us die because all you care about is going home and paying your rent.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so when we say, you know, about white people's comfort, all of this is going to be uncomfortable, but it's not only uncomfortable to white people. It's uncomfortable to humans in general, because humans have existed for hundreds of thousands of years. And, and, humanity requires oppressions because humans have never known how to coexist ever. They've always required to have rankings of identities and experiences.
0: Got it. Got it. But I just want to kind of you, you know, have you kind of address that like right away, because I don't want anybody to think that you're going with this malicious type of uh, mentality to kind of jump on and attack, you know, white people to make them uncomfortable. Oh. The history, the well, no, knowledge, the research, and all of that will do that on its own. You're just a presenter or the messenger, right? That just happens to be one a of the ones. I'm not just presenter. I'm
1: that. Go ahead. Okay. So I'm not just the presenter. I'm not just the messenger. I'm actually the real life. <laughs> um, I don't do disclaimers and intros for white people. Never. Never do I walk into a space and say, I'm not here to offend you. That is white people's job to worry about, not mine. So... When people are interviewing me, don't do that for white people. I Look, white people's discomfort is 100% on white people. That is up to them to figure out. That includes white liberals, white progressives who think that them doing a little bit of something means that now, you know, the sun is hovering over them. You know, their offense, their tears, their discomfort, that's their self-reflection. And I don't address that. I don't apologize. I don't do intro lessons. I don't do comforter and pillow sets. That is 100% for white people to reflect on because black and brown people have five centuries of wasting time worrying about that part and doing disclaimers for white people. So we're not doing that anymore.
0: Right, right. I agree 100%. So for the listeners and specifically for my black listeners that would hear this, uh, know that when she said that white people's discomfort is white people's discomfort, that is where it should stop. That's where it should. It ends right there. Right. So, so yeah. again, thank you for asking. Answer- <laughs> thank you for answering that question. I'm
1: just saying, like, when we, cause when we talk about white people's discomfort and we give white people like a, a thank you card before we get started, that's implying that five centuries of our people being controlled, raped, murdered, stolen now needs to care about white people's comfort. Like, what? And then, like, it doesn't even make sense. So look, changes are already difficult it gets even more difficult if the changes come with a sweet tea for white people to drink to make sure white people stay cool in this hot temperature of change so black folk i mean most black folks are going to hear this and still do that game because right. they've been taught all their lives that that's the only way to survive mm-hmm. so i don't expect most people to stop doing that just know that in my space In my vicinity, I do not ever pretend that Dr. W.B. Du Bois' double consciousness means token Negro. I also want to highlight to Black people that Stephen Fetchett was an actor. So when that book was written about Stephen Fetchett and he told his story, he was explaining how he became wealthy as an actor. Stephen Fetchett does not mean he was telling you to be Stephen Fetchett for your life.
0: Yes, ma'am. You got it. Thank you again for, for, for answering that question. Um, so <laughs> cri- critical race theory. It's
1: so funny. Uh. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I saw all that. Well, thank you for answering. <laughs> critical race theory. Big hype. A lot of pushback. Um,
0: why do you believe that there is a lot of pushback? I mean, I'm just asking you as the expert with a lot of knowledge in that particular field. Why do you believe? Of course, it's, it's, some of it is totally obvious, but why do you believe that there's a lot of pushback on, quote unquote, critical race theory? You have just listened to part one of the All Things Black podcast episode interview with Dr. Kemia nuru Dennis talking about education and
1: critical race theory. Make sure you tune in next week for part two.